We're going to continue in our time uh, in our series. Uh, you know, if you're a guest here, um, you know, typically we we believe in expository preaching. We we hold that that uh, there's nothing better than a robust, regular diet of God's Word. And so when we say expository preaching, we mean exposing the meaning of the passage that we read together, that we study together, um, simply meaning the point of the passage is the point of the sermon. And we don't want to preach just some of our favorite topics. We think that God's Word is sufficient enough, so we don't have to, we don't have to come up with, with crazy topics. Um, so, because God's word helps, but ever so often we do believe it is okay and healthy to do some topical studies. And right now we're doing our marriage series, Redeeming Marriage, and so we are on lesson four uh, tonight. And uh, over the past few weeks we've been studying this, and I was going to read just the, the first two commitments. Um, you know, this this series centers around. A couple of commitments, uh, seven to be, six to be exact, sorry. Six to be exact, uh, commitment number one was we will give ourselves to a regular lifestyle of confession and repentance. Remember John Kirkpatrick taught on that. We talked about a regular, a healthy marriage is one, especially a gospel healthy, gospel-centered healthy marriage, is one that will regularly confess sin and ask for forgiveness, but also be uh, eager to to extend forgiveness to others. And then we just then uh, the last lesson we did was we will make growth and change our our daily agenda, and that is you know this reality that it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way, and and so we have to set an expectation for ourselves, uh, for other as 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 members of the body of Christ for one another that we will regularly be uh, putting effort in. And by the way, it's a grace-driven effort, right? Many people believe this concept of, right, it's by grace we're saved, but after I'm saved, I have to go to work in order to keep my salvation. And that's simply just not true. The, 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 the simply uh, put, it is grace through and through, but it will require actual effort. Actual effort is needed to grow in Christ-likeness, right? God has chosen to reveal himself to us through his word. Well, guess what? You can't hear the revelation from God if you don't read your Bible, right? And so there is some clear expectations that, that you do need to put some effort into your daily walk. Um, and so tonight, though, we're going to be studying commitment number three, and that is that we will work together to build a steady bond of trust. By the way, uh, what did you expect is the primary resource we're using uh, for this by Paul Tripp. If you are interested, you can come check this copy out. This is my copy, but I think we probably have a couple more on the bookshelves in the back um, that you're, you're welcome to. So, um, so commitment number three, we will work together to build a steady bond of trust. Um, let me just start with this question. Actually, let me pray for us, and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll jump in with this question. Oh, God, our Father, we, God, we lift, um, God, first off, we love you. And we thank you, Father, for, for first loving us and pursuing us and, and, and purchasing us by the blood of your Son. And God, I just pray, Father, knowing 
the reality of the world that we live in, the reality that there are fallen, broken relationships, fallen and broken marriages. God, we, we recognize our sheer dependence on your grace. And God, I just pray, Father, even for those in this room that aren't married, God, there, there is something about uh, understanding what forgiveness and, 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 and extending trust and, and growing in trust. And there are principles out of this that we can all take and wrestle with. God, so I pray that you would use these truths tonight to impress upon us change, but change, Father, ultimately rooted in the gospel. And so, Father, we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. The first question I want to ask is, would your spouse say that you are good for your word and faithful to your promises? Would your spouse say that, that you are good for your word and faithful to your promises? You know, the Bible holds out the real possibility that you, your view of yourself may be less than accurate. <laughs> your view of yourself may be, may be less than accurate. Yes, uh, I know we all tend to think that, that we know ourselves better than, better than anyone does. But is this, is this actually true? Do we really know ourselves better than anybody else? Um, well, the Bible teaches that sin blinds and, and becomes, because it blinds, uh, we, we do not know ourselves as well as we think we do. I like to say it this way, that sin blinds, and guess who it blinds first? We, we have no problem seeing our weakness and failure. We have no problem seeing our weakness and failure in others, but when it comes to uh, hearing our own weaknesses, hearing our own failures, our own sins, oftentimes we can become really surprised. Oh, I can't believe you'd see that in me, right? I can't believe you would think I would do those kinds of things. It's not always easy to be to have things pointed out in your life. And so we actually need people in our lives who will help us see ourselves with, with accuracy. And, you know, I was thinking about this passage today, Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3, 3 verses 12 and 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to, to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know, this is, this is one of the benefits of marriage. Because you are actually living with your spouse 24-7, he or she has a comprehensive view of, of who you are and how you operate. And, and know your, spouse, your spouse's view of you will, will not be perfectly uh, uh, biased. But it will tend to be more objective than your view of you. So take this question to your spouse. Ask your spouse if, if he 
has come to consider you to be trustworthy and, and why or why not, you know, take this to your husband, ask, uh, you know, or, or to, your, to your wife, you know, do you consider me to be trustworthy? Why or, or why not? And open your heart to see what you could not see by yourself and commit yourself to respond to what your spouse helps you to see with humility and with a commitment to change. And so I think it'd be helpful for us tonight as we begin to think about trust is maybe we should define it. Maybe we should, should give a definition to what, what do we mean by trust. And so um, this is the way Paul Tripp describes it here, that trust is being so convinced that you can rely on the integrity, strength, character, and faithfulness of another that you are willing to place yourself in his or her care. So one of the essential foundation stones of marriage is trust. I mean, it's one of the essential foundation stones. No trust, there's no marriage. At least not the kind of marriage that that God designed uh, when he created this lifelong relationship. And so you can have cohabitation without trust, but you can't have an intimate, vulnerable, mutually cooperative, one flesh union that, that marriage is intended to be without trust. You just, you just can't. And so we have to recognize that, that trust is absolutely essential to a good marriage, to a God-gratifying and, and, and joyful marriage. Trust is going to be absolutely critical. And so according to one researcher, trust is, is the cornerstone of every relationship. But how do we become trustworthy? Think about that. How, how do we become trustworthy? So, yeah, how, how do we become trustworthy? How do we regain um, trust in someone when, when, they're, when they've done something to betray our trust? How, how do we gain, regain that, that kind of trust back? Well, as essential as trust is for healthy relationships, trust is also it's pretty tricky when you think about it. In, in my counseling training, um, I was taught that trust is the result of trustworthy actions. That trust is the result of, of trustworthy actions. So this is this is a handy description, but but it but it needs some uh, it needs some nuance to be to be effective. It needs we need to put a little bit more to that. And the obvious question is, what are trustworthy actions? What, what are the trustworthy actions? Well, the answer may seem easy at first, but, but relationships at any length quickly reveal that what one person conceives as trustworthy, what one person sees as trustworthy activity often goes unnoticed and, and underappreciated by others. So 
John Gottman, he's a professor at the University of Washington. He's done quite a bit of, uh, of clinical research on this particular topic. And according to, to Dr. Gottman, trust, he says, trust is built when we observe actions that let us know another person is for me, even when it costs them something. That they're for me even when it costs them something. So notice the two components of that description. One person doing, the other person recognizing. So both are equally necessary to build or rebuild trust. And so conversely, when, when, when they are lacking, when those two things are lacking, obviously mistrust Will begin will begin to, to build and, and to and to and to build upon itself, and so we can outline the process of rebuilding trust. And I want to give you four ways that you can work to foster and build trust in your marriage or or just in any relationship, really. We can outline the process of rebuilding trust in four steps. One is to, and it kind of goes along with some of the things we've already been talking about in this series, and that is to admit and repent. To admit and repent. You see, if your hope and security in life, you, you've put all your personal rest, inner sense of well-being in, in the basket of your righteousness. It is very hard for you to have, uh, it's very hard for you to have, uh, f- to have a relationship. And so it's very hard to live with you because you cannot be wrong, right? If, if, if all I'm doing is resting in my own righteousness, then it's going to be really hard to be in a relationship with you because you could never be wrong, right? Sarah knows. I mean, I, we've been married for 10 years, and I'm, I'm never wrong, right? No, that's not true. I, 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 boy, this is something that, that in our first 10 years of marriage, I've been particularly convicted about, actually, um, that, I, I that that there were t- there would be times she would come and, and approach me about something, maybe something I said or or something I was doing, and I would I would find myself activating my inner lawyer, right, defending myself, and I wouldn't listen to what she was saying, and that was something that that God, honestly, is still really refining in me, and I and I and I I have an inclination to do that, right? I get backed into a corner to to defend myself, um, and that's something that. I realize that's sin. That's a response. That's a, that's a sin response that I have to continually repent over. And so there's this idea. If, if, if you're holding your righteousness close to you, then you're going to be hard to have a relationship with because you can never be wrong. But you must defend your words, right? You must defend your actions. You'll, you'll have a very active inner lawyer um, you will you will argue for uh, for the right of what you've done. You you will become defensive, um, unapproachable. But it makes relationships very hard because there becomes no basis for wrong to be dealt with. Because 
I must hold on to my own righteousness. I must convince myself of my righteousness, and I must convince you that, that I'm righteous. Right? Do you see what's happening here? Do you see what's happening when you begin to, to, to believe and to work in this own narrative for yourself, where you're blinded by your own sin, blinded by your, your shortcomings? Then there will be no change, no possibility for change there. And we're, we're locked into something that won't allow us to discuss the things that, and to look at the things that, that will lead to change. We're, we're, we're trapped. So, but what God gives us in his son is a righteousness that's not our own. I couldn't achieve acceptance with God. I couldn't be righteous enough. The reason Jesus says don't parade your righteousness in front of others, in front of other people, is because you don't have any. You don't have any righteousness to parade in front of others. And so once I get this, once, once in a marriage relationship you can get this, you can get that it's not about me. It's not about me measuring up. It's not about how good I have to be. It's not, but, but, but in contrast, it is about Christ. What he's done for me, I stand as righteous before God and praise him for that, right? That Christ's righteousness has been credited to us on our behalf, right? Not because of anything I brought to the table, but what was given to me when I, when I deserved it the least. So when this becomes the reality, this becomes what we're grasping to, not a righteousness of our own, but one of Christ alone, then I can be a bit of a mess because I am, right? You can be a bit of a mess because, because you are. You are a mess. And I don't have to defend my words anymore. I don't have to make you think I'm something that I'm not. I don't have to live as a very skilled self-swindler because my security, my rest is not in my righteousness. It's in the righteousness of Christ. And so when, when we can open, when we can be open and humble and approachable, now we can begin to deal with our mess. And so what it allows is these two character qualities to grow. Whenever I'm not holding on to my righteousness, but I'm holding on to the righteousness of Christ, there are two character qualities that I think begin to, to rise to the surface. And the first one is humility of approachability. I become an approachable person because I'm resting in a righteousness that's not my own. And then second character quality is that it's the courage of loving honesty. The courage of loving honesty. I'm not afraid to speak the truth to you because I'm actually afraid. Uh, but, you know, sometimes there can be a fear to speak the truth to somebody just because there, there might be a fear of rejection. Because... My well-being is not in your acceptance. My well-being is in the acceptance that was purchased 
by a righteous Christ. And so we, we can be humbly approachable and courageously honest, and that means we can now begin to deal with the things that, that break trust. So that's, that's the first thing, I think the first step in the process of regaining trust, and that is admitting that you're not as perfect as you think you are, and repenting, saying to God, I'm not perfect. In fact, I'm a wretched sinner. And that means saying that to your spouse. I've sinned against you. And what I really deserve is judgment. What I really deserve is separation. What I really deserve is for you to kick me to the street. Right? And I think that type of attitude, right? Not that we want to promote spouses to kick their, their spouse to the street to the street. I'm not advocating for that. The point is that you deserve it. And to say you don't deserve it means you haven't gotten this, right? You haven't gotten this. You, you haven't listened to anything I've said. The point is we're all broken. The point is we all need a Savior. And good news for us is that God has made a way, right? God has made a way. And so the second thing, if the first is to admit and repent, the second is to define and exhibit trustworthy actions. To, de to define and exhibit trustworthy actions. And, and, and I'll just say, this will require intentionality. You know, keep the promises you make. It, it's, it's really just that simple. I remember my dad is here right now, and so I remember... I remember sitting in the truck with him. He's a black Ford, and I'll never forget a conversation. I don't remember why we were having this conversation. But he once told me that a man's word, that, that, that means something. When you say you're going to do something, you do it. You know, and this is the reality. It's just that simple. Keep the promises that you make. And this is another area that, that, I've, that I've struggled with, and I've been convicted even today as I begin to really think through Man, am I really a trustworthy spouse? And the thing that Sarah and I always, we, we talk about is I'll say, hey, look, I'm going to be home. I'm going to leave the office at 5 o'clock, 4.30. I'm going to leave the office. And then 4.45 rolls around, four, you know, 5 o'clock rolls around, 5.15 rolls around. And I realized today, today as I was thinking through this and yesterday, I was becoming really pierced by these questions. These, these little bitty things that in the grand scheme, you think, oh, that's not that big of a deal. But these things add up, right? These, these little things add up through time. So keep the promises you make. It's just that simple. And so you want to be a person, uh, you want the, the person you live with to know that what you commit to do, you will do. In the time that you commit to do it, and that you will do it, that you promise to do. So now, now as, I, as I stated earlier, most of your promises will be small. But you can't let yourself minimize the importance of the little promises. Remember, remember the theme that is running throughout this entire series. And this theme that runs throughout the entire series is you do not build a marriage of unity, understanding, and love 
in a few big moments in life. But in 10,000 little moments, 10,000 little bitty moments, that's what you're building this marriage on. Little promises are important precisely because they are little. And and the, the cumulative effect of your little moments of faithfulness will convince your husband or your wife that you can be trusted with the greater matters of life. The scriptures say, right, he was faithful with the small things, right, little things, will be given much, right? This is this principle in scripture that we see. So your spouse will know that she has been blessed to live with someone upon whom she can rely and who will not let circumstances and contingencies or excuses get in the way of his doing what he has promised to do. So are you serious about your promises, even when they are little? And do you do everything in your power to follow through? Number three, the second one was define and exhibit pattern of trustworthy actions, but also to recognize and encourage trustworthy actions, to recognize and encourage trustworthy actions. I'm going to give an example of this in a little bit. But when, when your emotions are frazzled, frazzled and your strength is weak, when your hope is dim and your resolve is just about gone, it is very easy to be tempted to cut and run. It is very easy to tell yourself that there is no way out. It is very easy to be cynical, refusing to believe that the other person is is willing and able to change. So it's very easy to begin fantasizing about what life will look like on the other side of marriage. And it's very easy to go into your shell and and turn your home into a motel where two people live together but, but live without any meaningful relationship to one another. There are many people who live in marriages that have long since died. And there are husbands and wives who have closed off their feelings and live lonely lives while sharing the same address. There are couples whose relationship has been reduced to perfunctory phone calls or quick text messages or a brief email. There are many couples who have gotten to the point where they don't like the uh, another very much and, and don't really want to be together, but, but haven't done anything to change the state of their marriage. In a word, most of the people who have given up, they still live together. It is a painful and discouraging way to live. If, you're, if your marriage is sick, refuse to let the patient die. Resolve that this is not going to die. Don't give up. Get, get angry, in fact. Get angry. Not, not, not at your spouse, but at the sin 
the weakness and the, and the failure that has broken your, your union. And fight these things as the enemies they truly are. So, learn to celebrate the things that build up trust in relationships. Humility and openness and willingness. When those things are seen and observed in your relationship, like acknowledge those things. Say, man, I really appreciate your openness to come and talk to me about this. Like, I really appreciate that. A willingness to confess your, your sins, your, your failings. Like, acknowledge those things. Give praise to those things. Let me give you an example of what this might look like. At least these first three steps, and I want to get into the fourth step, which is the most foundational step. If a wife discovers that her husband is using pornography, she is understandably devastated and now mistrusts her husband's uh, her husband's every technological activity, anything that he could possibly do, and, and rightfully so, right? How does the couple move forward to regain trust? How, how will they move forward to regain trust? Well, first, the husband must admit and repent. Tr- trust cannot even begin to be restored if the wife doesn't have a sense that her husband understands the pain that he has caused her. Like trust cannot grow unless he recognizes the ways he sinned against God and the ways he sins against and the way he sinned against her. And she's not going to give trust if she doesn't think he realizes that. And so Admitting and repenting is in and of itself a process, and, and one that should, be, should not be short of sorrow, by the way. It should not be short of sorrow. It should not be short of shame and tears and apologizing. By the way, this, this, this perspective of repentance, um, if I were going to recommend a resource to you to read. It's a little bit heady. You'll have to work your way through it. But it's The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson. And I would just, I really encourage you to read it and to see, like, what does repentance, what does biblical repentance really look like? I mean, how, 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 is this something that I see in myself? I mean, I would just really encourage, it's a little Puritan paperback. So he's a, he's a dead pastor from a long time ago. Um, but it's good to read to read dead guys. I think everybody should be reading dead guys every so often. Thomas Watson, The Doctrine of Repentance. So good, so rich. But let's assume that the husband has taken those steps. He's admitted his sin. He's taken responsibility for his sin. And now he generally wants to repair the massive trust wounds he has created. And the couple must work to define actions that that demonstrate to his wife that he is willing to sacrifice for her benefit, especially in the area of technology usage. So, for instance, he may need to to give her complete access to all his 
devices to be checked at her pleasure. Or she may want to, to put a tracker on his phone as a way to software to, to see what is it that he's doing, that he's looking at, that he's viewing. Or she may want her husband to have an accountability partner to whom she uh, herself can talk to freely and ask any questions that she wants to in order to make sure her husband is following through on the commitments that he's making. So these steps might hurt the husband's dignity. They, they might hurt his dignity. But they may be necessary to help the wife to begin to, to rebuild that trust. Both husband and wife must define what behaviors are trustworthy. They have to define what those behaviors have to be. In the aftermath of the husband's pornography usage, I mean, this is reality. I mean, you have to define what are steps that you're going to do that in, in order to, to regain my trust. And, and those trust, those things have to be observed, right? It could be infidelity. It could be, porn, I mean, pornography is infidelity. It could, be, it could be a number of things, right? Taking money and spending it um, and then hiding that from your spouse, whatever it may be. The point is, recognize and encourage trustworthy actions, but also to recognize uh, clear things that are going to build trust, define those things, and see those things through. And at the same time, the wife needs to recognize the steps her husband is taking. She has to recognize it. She should openly appreciate and encourage her husband. If she takes the husband's steps of sacrifice for granted, mistrust and resentment will begin to build in him. Of course, even if the wife does not respond well, this does not excuse, it does not give an excuse for, for her husband to continue in sin. So regardless of whether or not she acknowledges any of the steps he's taking, like he's still responsible to repent of his sins and, and to flee from sexual immorality and to, you know, he's, he, he, that's still his responsibility. And the husband... Uh, the, the husband has a clear mandate from God about how he must treat his wife. And, and, and that, holds true, uh, that holds true regardless of her response. So, nonetheless, the probability of, truth being re, uh, of trust being rebuilt is so much higher if one partner uh, intentionally recognizes the efforts of the other. And so trust increases when both people are willing to push themselves. While one partner shows that, that they are willing to take steps of, uh, to actively rebuild that trust, the other partner also must show that they are willing to entrust themselves to that partner. But, but how can we begin to entrust ourselves to someone who has betrayed us. How can we begin to entrust ourselves to someone who's betrayed us? And the answer ultimately is what is the the answer ultimately is that we start by, and that's the fourth thing, trusting God. Trusting God. Remember our definition of trust at the beginning of this session? 
that trust is being so convinced that you can rely on the integrity, strength, character, and faithfulness of another, that you are willing to place yourself in his or her care. The definition of trust we've been discussing is rooted not in the writings of a 21st century researcher or writer like Paul Tripp, but in the actual word, Word of God. When God himself is the anchor of our trust, we can engage in trust-restoring activity. He is a covenant-keeping God whose promises are faithful and sure. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 1 says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. God is a a promise-keeping God. His covenants will never be broken. So when he says to Eve in the garden that your seed will come and he will crush the head of the serpent, that is surely going to happen. And it did happen. So he is utterly and totally reliable, even when his promises seem so far off. We can trust God because he demonstrated his favor for us even when it cost him everything. God stands in need of nothing. He doesn't need us or our worship. He was not short of communion because he existed in the Trinity. He he was not short of fellowship because he existed in the Trinity. Nor was he lacking of any glory But he chose to be self-sacrificial in the most painful and demonstrable way possible. Therefore, he and he alone is the bedrock of our trust and the objective of our highest hopes. When, When the focus of our trust rests primarily on God and God alone, we can cry out, Just like Job, when he says, though you slay me, though you slay me, I will hope in him. Anchor your heart in the unfailing words of a faithful God. You know, Joshua 21 verse 45 says, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Every every one of them. They will come to pass. And his word will give you the strength to engage in the terrifying activity of entrusting yourself to someone who has betrayed you. Ultimately, if I'm counseling a couple... And one, one, of the, one, of the, one of the individuals is having a hard time trusting their husband. I want to encourage them, one, of the trustworthy God, and ultimately, their hope, their promise of hope for the future, 
is not rooted in the man or the woman that's sitting right beside them. It's rooted ultimately in the promise-keeping God. And so when we are called to forgive and be restored, which, which means making ourselves vulnerable again in some way, only, only God's promises of comfort and closeness can, in the end, ease our anxieties and soothe our, any future pain that we will have. Our hope, our trust, and our faith do not find their, their strength or confidence in the actions of a fellow sinner, but in the steadfast love of a sinless Savior. There, and there alone, will we find a well of trust that never, ever runs dry and never, ever betrays. And, and here's what we need to understand. The building of trust between you begins vertically before it ever begins horizontally. Does that make sense? It always begins vertically, you and God, before it can ever work horizontally. So this means that because of your confidence in God's presence and His love and His power in, uh, to, to change you, forgiveness, wisdom of what He calls you to do is empowering grace and unwillingness to forsake what He has has begun before it is done, and you are able to step out and build a trust relationship with your spouse. You see, as, as you are doing that, you are not placing your eggs in your spouse's basket and hoping that, that he or she will not drop them. No, you know that she is less than perfect. He may be less than perfect. And you know that, that he will fail. Rather, you have placed all your eggs in God's basket. And you know that even if your spouse fails, God will not. And so you know that he will give you what you need to deal with the danger and, and disappointment that comes with building a life of trust with someone who is still flawed and, quite frankly, really untrustworthy. And if we're really honest, if we're really honest, is anyone that trustworthy? Anyone? Really? No. But we can be. Because the gospel can empower us to be trustworthy. Because, again, it's rooted in a trustworthy God. And by His Spirit, He helps us put the death, the deeds of the flesh, so that we can live, right, from Romans 8. So by the Spirit, He empowers us, one, to be trustworthy and to also entrust to others ourselves. So because of your confidence in God, you can move forward Move toward your spouse and not be afraid to do this because 
although you love your spouse, you don't get your identity, your purpose in life, and your inner self uh, sense of, of well-being from, from him or her. You get that from the Lord. And because you trust him, you can build trust with your spouse. And so we make a commitment. And that commitment is that we will work together to build a steady bond of trust. But make no mistake, it will require effort. But again, it is a grace-driven effort, and God will give you strength. He will give you hope. So I've got, I've got five minutes. Are there any questions anybody might have about building trust? This is always a tricky one. Trust is a really hard one because it's never a simple, there's never a simple thing you can do to gain someone's trust, right? It's built over, like, like, like we said, thousands of little promises kept. But anybody? So I see a hand. No? Okay, well, I'm going to close this then with prayer. I'll be down front if there are any questions. Um, again, uh, we'll be praying for Pastor John, Pastor Chris, and, and Wendy. Um, we, uh, we're grateful that, that they are able to go away and to, one, invest into their marriage, into their families. We think that's really important. Um, but again, as we talked about even the first week, romance and vacations, they're not what save marriages. <laughs> the gospel of Jesus Christ is what saves marriages. And we firmly believe that. And so, are you a trustworthy person? Would your spouse say that you're a trustworthy person? Let's pray.